Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Time. Time is the most commonly used word in the English language. When you look at the 25 most common used words in the English language, we also see words that relate to time. Year, day, week are also on that list, as well as number. And number probably referring to its temporal aspect as well. Time. It's something that we think about every day. It guides everything we do. When we work, how many hours a day of the week do we work? How many days off do we have? What time of year is it? Is it time to take vacation yet? We always think about time, whether we're aware of it or not. And this is very important to be able to frame, because time is the plane in which God works and in which we live our spiritual lives. But time to the ancient church was understood with two words, not one like we have in English. One word was chronos, and the other was kairos. Today with me, I have Peter Ibrahim, the founder of the St. Jacob of Sarug Choir, located in Vancouver, British Columbia. And their work is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube Music. Um, so I found that Peter is very gifted with understanding, especially in terms of theology and the liturgy. So we're going to have a conversation today on this topic of time, especially in the understanding of time as both chronos and kairos, according to the mind of the early church. So Peter, um, what, you know, I'm very happy to have you again um, for our audience. Literally, our first conversation became a podcast episode titled The Logos. And uh, from then we've had, uh, you know, these ongoing conversations about theology, liturgy, life, uh, all sorts of topics. So um, how do we understand Kronos and Kairos? And I'm very happy to be with you too, Daniel. Thank you for having me on. Uh, how do we understand Kronos and Kairos? So um, I've had, you know, a quite a great deal of contemplation on this topic over the last couple of years. It's been a great fascination to me, specifically the the idea of time and what is time? Is time a thing, you know, independent of our experience? Is it just a part of our experience? Um, and kind of just jotted down some of my ideas in a, a journal and reflection of this. So kind of the, the basic gist of how I, I thought of time is in terms of Kairos and Kronos, um, first the idea of a transience of time, that time is transient. And then the idea that Time brings you to this end, this eschaton, which we'll probably unwrap later on. And then this idea of the transfiguration of time in Christ. Um, one of the things that really caught my attention in terms of um, the difference in understanding time in the Greek was when I read the verse um, that we find in Galatians. And that verse, 
Let's see if I can bring it out right here. That verse is, um, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. 4. Um, and so, you know, the verse kind of caught my attention. And the way most of us would read that now is, you know, when things are right, when everything reached its right to circumstance, when it, all the right outcomes and factors were taken into account, then God sent forth his son. So maybe we should go through the, the, the definition of the two words of kairos and, and chronos first. I, I'll say this. Chronos is basically the quantitative understanding of time, um, you know, chronology. That's where the word chronos um, feeds into the English language. Or chronic pain, pain that lasts a long duration of time. It's quantitative. Um, whereas kairos is a word that we don't see as much in English language, which is time for opportunity or qualitative time. So it's the time to act. Uh, I know in the Byzantine liturgy, it begins with, it's the time um, the time for the service or the beginning of the liturgy begins with kairos. And so it's the time now to celebrate the liturgy. Um, so the word kairos is a much more qualitative, um, more of a bird's eye view of time, less of, you know, what time is it on the clock, which would be yeah, and, and, and to give our, our listeners, um, just to expand upon that, Chrono says that every, every day, the, ticking, the uh, ticking of the clock, the routine, the repetition, um, but Kairos is, you know, specific days of the year, like holy days or occasions or seasons. That word is often translated, I think most of the time translated season, but it's not season just like spring, summer, winter, fall. I didn't put, say those in the right order, but I did say them in an order. <laughs> um, so I didn't say them in chronological order, but they're definitely expressed as different K-Raw. Um, you know, when, when we see the spring, for example, um, and the, the things that it brings, the, the milder weather, the flowers everywhere, the really light green color that the trees take on, as soon as they're refoliating, that is a kairos because it's a quality. The quality mm. is manifesting itself in time. It's not regular TikTok. You know, we don't see trees flowering in the winter. So there's this, like you said, a qualitative aspect to time where, yes, while there is still that ticking in, uh, of the clock, something has changed. This quality reappears every year at the same time and whatnot. So it's things like holy days, occasions, seasons, and they're meaningful. So Kairos is always meaningful. Chronos can be, uh, you know, not inherently meaningful, lack meaning. Would you agree? Completely agree. It's more of the analytical side of time or the more, you know, narrower scientific perspective of time. Like, you know, the car took this many seconds to pass from this location to this location. Or, for example, chirotic time would be something totally different. What's, um, like you said, times of seasons, holy days, things of significance. Um, I know, for example, this was brought up on another podcast recently I was listening to, um, where, you know, you might have your birthday on a specific date every year. And actually, your birth date might be on a specific time during that date. But when you actually step back and look at it, a lot of what we do to measure time is it is 
largely a human construct. Yes, it's surrounded around how the planets rotate and revolve around the sun and so on. However, it we make it that day. And so that's why sometimes, for example, um, you know, the person that was producing the podcast was saying that their birthday always comes on a fasting day. So they just end up relocating it a few days later and celebrate it afterwards. And still that moment is their birthday because they've qualitatively made it that. That's how they've, you know, all the relations of things together coming together makes that time, the significance of that time, the significance of that moment as the moment of that person's birthday. But I think that's a fundamental difference between uh, Kairos and Kronos as you. And, and again, you're pointing out the qualitative aspect. It's the commemoration. Um, so in a sense, um, you know, like the liturgy even incorporates seasons. You know, we have seasons like right now, the, the holy 50 days, but then we also have Advent season and things change based on that time. We reorient ourselves. And I would say that Kairos causes a reorientation. If everything was just TikTok, we would just fall into this routine and become brainless and mindless. And I think like social media has turned everything into Kronos. There is no more Kairos, no, at least no more experienced Kairos, um, no more qualitative aspect of time. Everything's just an occasion to turn on the phones and check social media. You know, if, if you're supposed to be asleep at night and you're a teenager, you're waking up at two o'clock in the morning to scroll through your entire feed. You know, if you're sitting in the liturgy, you're on your phone checking the feed. If you're sitting at the park, instead of enjoying like a nice, beautiful day and sunset, you're checking your feed. So it's, it's, Kronos takes away our ability to refocus, to reorient where the holy days do, where the liturgy does. Um, even that idea of when we say, look toward the East, we're already looking toward the East. Why would the, the acolyte on the altar have to say that mm. it's because he's talking about the spiritual east and even in greek to to orient oneself he uses uh the root anatolas which is east um, right orient. orient yeah orient in, in english yeah and that um orient as an east so kairos mm -hmm. reorients us and it causes us to taste of a deeper life of a higher plane of existence I think like um, like like with marriages, like real marriages, people will laugh. Um, but when two people love each other and they enter into a marriage and they converse, they actually start losing sensation of the TikTok mm. and start noticing the qualitative aspects of life. Um, I saw a meme today. I thought it was very uh, profound. It had Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. And it said they had all the money in the world and they couldn't stay married. And it's because yeah. they're losing sense of chaos. You know, you look at what these two men are doing, which by far, you know, they've done a lot of great things for the world. But they're focused on too narrow part of existence. It's just the TikTok, the everyday, how do I solve all these little problems in the world? The quantitative. Uh, yeah, the quantitative aspects of time. And I can't help but think, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't counsel them. <laughs> I'm not a marriage therapist, but I can't help but think maybe that had an effect on those marriages. Because, I mean, seriously, it was not a matter of resources. <laughs> Heck, they could, buy, they could buy countries with that type of money. Right. And I, I think that's very profound because if you think about it, the more you are focused on profit making and productivity, 
to the extreme, um, the more your life becomes a turns around quantities more than it is qualities. You're not looking at it from a more holistic perspective. Rather, you're everything is about money. Everything is about producing more of this, producing more of that kind of resource. And all of that is easily definable by a chronos. You know, how much time do you have that you can produce this much amount of thing? That's the saying that we have now today. Time is money. I think there's a much, much higher understanding of time in the church that we find. Time is not so much money as it is a self-giving or sacrifice. And uh, I think that's very much related to our understanding of Kairos. I think we can unpack that later. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, when you think about money, um, the idea of compound interest, where, you know, you, you put in an initial amount, like a hundred bucks, or let's say, no, let's make it bigger. Let's say a hundred thousand bucks. And let's say compounds 10% a year. Now it's 110,000 bucks. But next year when it compounds, it's going to compound 10% on that new compounded value. So mm. it's going to add 11,000 bucks. What's interesting about compound interest is that it works both ways. You know, over time, your money can gain value if you, you've invested it. But if you've saved up too much, you've stored it up, it loses the value of inflation. So if inflation's two and a half percent this year, it's going to lose that value just by sitting there being saved. What's interesting is people who try to invest and just invest for the sake of investing, if they would have given some of that money the compound in people's lives would be way more than just the measly 10%. You know, mm. think about taking that $10,000 and, you know, funding a disadvantaged child's education so they don't have to end up in the cycle of poverty. That's not going to compound 10%. You're going to transform an entire family and generations because mm. of that education that you've helped provide. So, that kind of imagery too, if you don't mind me interrupting, is that's very much, you know, present in the parable, not the parable, sorry, in the miracle of the multiplication of the two loaves, yeah, or the two fish and the five loaves. That idea of investment in others, um, and with compound interest, that's that's that is the image part excellence of that. Yeah, and it's 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 about generosity. Um, mm. And, and it's interesting because like the church fathers, um, especially the earlier you go, um, they had a trouble with businessmen, not, mm. not, you know, the concept, you know, that we have people who spend their whole lives trying to make money. And by, by, by no means are we saying here, you know, trying to make money and investing wisely is bad, but just there's a point between investing and sitting in front of the computer all day long, <laughs> figuring out when to trade something to make money on it. But like uh, Second Clement, um, in, in Second Clement, he says, "Do not let it trouble your mind that we see the unrighteous possessing wealth, while the servants of God experience hardships. Let us have faith, brothers and sisters. We are competing in the contest of a living God, and are being trained by the present life. And train here is like like gymnastic training. What he mm -hmm. uses, in order that we may be crowned in the life to come." None of the righteous ever received his reward quickly, but waits for it. For if God paid the wages of the righteous immediately, we would soon be engaged in business, not godliness. Though we, had a, we would appear to be righteous, we would in fact be pursuing not piety, but profit. And this is why the divine judgment punishes a spirit that is not righteous 
and loads it with chains. So that's very deep. Um, it's this idea that, you know, if we're trying to get something immediately in the realm of chronos, it doesn't really have a value. But when we work towards something, you know, like like he uses the word gymnasometha in, in Greek, which is um, to train like in gymnastic training, it's you're understanding the qualitative aspect of life, you know, that nothing comes easy, that you have to participate in a process, in a community, in a way of life, in order for that a, life to be transformed. Right. There needs to be a telos or a vision or a goal toward, to which you're striving. And I feel like a lot of the time, this, this you know, obsession with productivity and, and profit making is what it eventually does is it kind of robs you of any vision or goal except making more money and when you're just focused on working for the sake of working or for the sake of efficiency or productivity or whatever um like you said it's 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 kairos starved time in that kind of sense yeah so. yeah and, and i think money is one of the main ways um the focus on money that it moves you from a life of kairos to chronos and you just get stuck in the routines, you know, even with like stock trading, you know, the day traders, they wake up in the morning, they monitor the whole day. It's like, what type of life is that? It's like, you're taking on a second job as a, you know, your personal financial advice. And for right. what? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Now, I think there should be a balance between living in Kronos, the TikTok, the routine and Kairos. You know, right. it's, it's, it's like, I think Kronos is um, time, um, like it's unfulfilled by nature, kind of like an empty field. Mm -hmm. But if you work on that field and you fulfill it, then it becomes Kairos. Like you can take the same dirt field and turn it into a beautiful garden. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ancient, um, in the ancient world, they had what they were called like pleasure gardens, mm -hmm. which are kind of like the precursor for our parks. Um, and that's where the word, the word paradise is, is referring to. It's a pleasure garden. Yeah, yeah. P pleasure garden, paradise. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I imagine they were a lot more prettier than some of the parks that we have today. Absolutely. But it's like a garden is taking land and working in it. And it's, it's, you've turned it into something meaningful and enjoyable, not just enjoyable because mm -hmm. that provides work you know nobody has a beautiful garden that does not require work if it doesn't require work then it's just a bunch of weeds now and right. you've come back and let chronos take over so right. i think kairos is a fulfilled chronos mm -hmm. and, and that goes back to that verse that you quoted from galatians um when the fullness of time had come i believe the greek is sorry Chrono. it's chronos actually it's chronos actually but it's mm -hmm. the idea that um, when Kronos has been fulfilled, almost like, exactly. like it, it was pregnant with potential and now it has given birth, then that is also understood as Kairos. Right. Because and the word for fullness there is Pliroma. Yeah. And Pliroma can mean fulfillment or it can also mean consummation or completion. So um, there is a sense there also that time is when, when Christ is incarnate. Right? When Christ, when God sends forth his son born of a woman, 
that moment that he sent is the moment when time is fulfilled, it's completed, and we're talking about here about chronological time. Time is it's consummated. And so it's not just that Christ comes at the opportune time, the chirotic time that we were usually put there, and we're retrospectively uh, translating it back into the Greek, but um, it's the clock itself is fulfilled. It's the chronological moment. And so that's where I think our understanding of time and transfiguration of time plays a key role, where our understanding in, of Christ's incarnation plays a key role in, in seeing time transfigured from this point here on. And, and if I may add to that, um, in the Gospel of Mark, when Christ begins preaching, his mm. first words are the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word for time here is chaos. Yeah. So he's pointing out that the end has come. And we're going to talk about what that means because a lot of people think the end times, well, that's, I'm going to confuse some people. <laughs> they think the end of the world is, you know, when the clock stops ticking at the second coming of Christ, which is true in a sense. And we're going to talk about that sense. But there ha has been an end that has already come before us. And we'll talk about that. And it's going to be curious. There's actually a verse in Revelation that packs it very beautifully together. But yes, right. so I was just I was just going to continue on that thought. I mean, we are yeah. already living in the end ages. Because if you go to Hebrews 9, uh, verse 26, Paul writes, uh, according to the Alexandrian tradition, Paul writes, but now once at the end of the ages... He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the end of the ages, the word end here is synthelea, which again uh, is not actually eschaton, but it's the word consummation, you know, sin, synthesis. Bringing together, synthesis, bringing, together bringing together all the goals. Telos, yeah. Telos. So it's the, the coming together of all the ends of all the teloses of different things. And um, so that's where we get the word consummation, right? The summation of many things consumed, con together, then consummation or culmination or completion of parts coming together at their end. So um, I think this passage dilates our understanding of Paul's usage of pleroma as well in the earlier verse, um, where we're thinking about not just simply a, um, you know, a point on the clock, uh, but a sort of fulfillment of chronos as it is, as it is known, so that it can become Kairos and probably something even more than Kairos. Um, but uh, yeah, and yeah. and and to connect this now to history, because of course these words have a bearing on our understanding of history. You know, uh, my degree is in history, and we talk about chronology and whatnot. But mm. you know, a lot of people question. Well, you know, if humans have been on the earth for all these years, you know. Um, if, if we go with, with modern science, 100,000 years at least, why would God have waited so long to send his son? But we kind of mistake something. If he had sent his son, let's say the week after Adam and Eve sent, then what would have happened? Okay, sure, they met him, it's nice, he was crucified, you know, they didn't have the tools to do that. And then there is no writing to continue that. So that could not have been the fullness of time. Time had to let its course go. Almost like, again, the analogy of pregnancy. Pregnancy mm. takes a specific number of months. For time to become pregnant enough to accept Christ and he be born in time, 
certain things had to happen. Number one, humanity had to develop time to reflect. And that didn't really happen until cities, the establishment of cities and agriculture, um, to the level where, you know, they could pass down their collective reflections in a more uh, detailed and precise way. You know, before that, people would rely on mythology just to pass down um, general truths about the world in personified form. But that's not enough for like a, a very deep reflection on what it means to be human. It's definitely a very good start. But then you would need the next step, which is also to appreciate the ordering of the world. And that comes in by philosophy. You know, we observe the seasons, the calendars. Um, we understand how to navigate when we want to sail and so forth. And we see the coherence of the cosmos. Mm. So by that time, you know, after so many uh, thousands of years, Christ comes in. That's the fulfillment. But it's also his working with the Jewish people to create a sensibility for the one God and to prepare, so to say, that part of the ground to become a garden. Um, now, a lot of people like take offense. I've heard them, you know, he left all those human beings for 100,000 years to die. But what's interesting is we assume that because it's 100,000 years, it must be more humans have lived um, in that time than humans today. And what's interesting is that's not the case. More humans have lived in the last couple of thousand years on this planet than have lived in the, you know, 100,000 years before that. Mm. It's, it's interesting because, like, you look at the population of the world, like, let's say a couple thousand years ago, it's about 200 million. Mm. Then, like, a couple hundred years ago, it's about a billion. Then mm. now, a couple hundred years later, it's coming close to 8 billion. And there are estimates, actually. Scientists can make estimates based on so many different things about, um, you know, the genome. And, and, you know, mutation and whatnot. And there's an estimate that there's been about 80 billion humans that have ever lived. Well, that means 10% of all human beings that have ever lived are currently alive. It's like that's a high percentage. That's a massive percentage. <laughs> that's a massive when percentage. Taking, when you're taking into account all the years that humans have existed, whether you subscribe to whatever theory or not, um, that's still a tiny fraction. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a tiny fraction, but it's like it's 40 times more people alive in one moment than yeah. there were alive 2000 years ago. And even probably, I think I was reading in, in demographic studies, like from about the time of Christ to 1000 AD, mm -hmm. probably a billion humans lived on this planet. Wow. And that means there are eight times more human beings alive today than in that span of a thousand years. So yeah. the time really has been fulfilled. I believe, you know, I think he came at the earliest possible moment where it would have been meaningful and uh, the church would have been able to pass down what they had received from him. You know, I said there's also like a personal contemplation that one can apply as well to this is that if you treat every moment as the end of the last moment, right? St. Augustine has this brilliant quote where he says, the past, the present of past things is memory, the present of present things is perception, and the present of future things is expectation. Because there is no past. There was a past, but there is no past right now. 
I can't take you to 080. I can show you remnants of that past right now in the present moment. That's memory. Um, of course, is is a verb of the present tense. You can never apply it to the past. So there is no past. There only was. And same thing with the future. So um, the, the brilliant thing about this is that if you realize it, the present moment is the last moment in time because the future doesn't exist yet. It is quite strictly speaking, it is the last moment of time. Every present is the last moment of time. So if you treat the last moment of time, if you treat the present as the last moment of time, will you be angry with someone? Will you treat anybody hastily? If you really, it's just as Christ says, be watchful and present um, for the end is near. So the end is every present moment that Christ uh, places at in your presence so that you're always constantly watchful. And, and in that way, you act righteously. You act with Christ before you always. You act as if you're already standing at the second coming. And in that case, God sends forth, send forth his son. And in you, you become a living member of Christ, part of his body. And I think that's another way that we can understand this verse is when the fullness of time comes, right? Every moment that is an end to us is a moment when Christ then it becomes incarnate in us, if we can use the word in such a way, or becomes embodied or becomes um, seen in us. So, and, that, and that also uh, goes back to what Christ said in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time, like it applies to us, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It is at hand now, not mm -hmm. just then. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that repentance is the first step um, to taking Absolutely. us to the point where he's formed in us. Absolutely. Now, um, I, I, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, and I think this this plays into the whole, you know, transient slash um, endingness of time is that you'll notice that time is so fleeting that you're always being put at this cusp. If you really sit and think about it, um, you know, the moment that you come into existence is the moment you're already ready to die. I think Heidegger was had one of those quotes. He said, as soon as you're born, um, as soon as you are, as soon as man comes to life, he is at once old enough to die. Hmm. I really like that quote. And I think this is expressed in our 11th hour litanies that we pray in the day every night. We say, the day has passed by me and vanished, right? This isn't just something that's, you know, true for some people, but other people may have worked hard. No, the day has passed by me and vanished. If you really sit and think about time itself in this fleetingness, um, it's also an opportunity for us to, to transform that experience. It's an experience of death and life at once. We all are under this spell or this this curse, you know, this death sentence of time. Curse. Yeah, under the curse. <laughs> yeah. Curse, yeah. And so this impermanence of experience allows us to um, turn to Christ every day and to treat that moment as the 11th hour the last of the laborers. And in that moment, we experience the grace of the present, which allows us to receive from Christ the wage of the whole day, despite not having worked for it, very well, we worked for it for only a moment. And in that moment, I think we move from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is the form of this world is passing away and turn to the experience of the resurrection even now. And that's That's repentance that we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that repentance, that first step, it's the breach of, um, or maybe, maybe use the analogy of the field. It's the seed 
the mm. first seed planted in that empty mm. field of Kronos to become the garden that is Kairos. And it's interesting because when we look at like the TikTok of time, and again, by itself, it's inherently meaningless, unless, you know, we're looking at compound interest. <laughs> but um, if we're living life like people, what makes time meaningful is those patterns, the manifestation of patterns, you know, the mm. seasons, the holy days, um, you know, the different aspects of life. Let's even forget the liturgy for a moment. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Just the normal course of human life, when we identify, distinguish, and respect things like, you know, uh, the age where children are helpless, then when they're children, then when they're teenagers, then when they're adults, and then when they're looking to get married and becoming parents themselves and growing old, those are all manifestations of a um, chaos. It's what makes life meaningful. But when we see people trying, you know, we're going to prepare this kid from three years old to become a doctor. So we're, we're going to get him a tutor. Um, he's going to be proficient in reading before he's four. And then, you know, we can hopefully start kindergarten um, at three and a half years old and, and get him to graduate from college by age 18. It messes up the progression of life. Right. It creates meaninglessness. And, and soon, I, I, yeah. And even if you think about the, like, the demarcations of those, when is it that exactly you become an adolescent? Okay, sure, you could say 13 or whatever. You mark it with a time. But they're, they're not clearly definable. They're qualitatively more or less qualitatively definable. A toddler looks like this, right? There is no moment where he ceases to be a toddler and now he's become um, a child or an adolescent. There isn't a moment where he ceases to be an adolescent and all of a sudden becomes an adult. It's a progression. Yeah. And that, that requires a qualitative survey of what's going on. It's not just a quantitative number that you can put on it. And I think what you're saying is, is exactly, you know, very well expressive of that. Is that you don't have a moment, you don't have a moment where it progresses from one thing to the next. Yeah, and and you know you pointed out very well. You know some kids become teenagers visibly at twelve years old, some at sixteen years old, but that doesn't mean the pattern's not there. The pattern is manifesting itself, and the pattern is is what calls the attention to it. But we try based on you know these these very, I would say very low ideals of, you know, a successful, uh, financially successful life. It causes us to mess up those patterns in life. Children never learn to be children. They let, never develop a robust imagination. They don't develop a way of looking at the world that's honest and true and, and pure. Everything just as, you know, there, there's you know, we, you know, everything is a means to an end. And how do we use that, manage that properly and i think that's why those kids that are raised that way have trouble with the people around them and even into adulthood mm. you know I, i've seen a very very successful high earning adults and you know they can't enter relationships mm. you know because they've learned to talk to life as if it's a means to an end yeah now i, I want to point out further you know those that manifestation of patterns that's chaos, or I want to go further now, eternity, breaking through into the present. And mm -hmm. the word chaos actually is indicative of eternity. When we think of eternity, we often think of, you know, um, it's pretty much got to be this life. 
Um, the ticking of the clock is going to continue. Um, it's never going to stop. But all the bad things that we hate will not occur. But that's actually a very weak, and I would argue maybe faulty way of looking at eternity. Eternity is more things just become present. There yeah. is no longer anything that has passed or future, because future refers to something that's potential and unfulfilled. Everything is fulfilled in the age to come. Exactly. So it's, it's like, you know, back to the analogy of love, you know, when a husband and wife are conversing with each other, which I would argue that is the essence of marriage, that dialogue, because that's an image of the dialogue between us and God. It is meant to be that way. That is exactly how like, it's described in the New Testament. It's an image of Christ and the church. Mm. When that conversation happens, I, I, I mean, I even heard it from a priest who you know, I, I've known for decades, and I never imagined him to be you know, the, the, the romantic type, more like the fire and brimstone <laughs> type. But he described an instance uh, when he was um, engaged to his wife, I think, and he said they started talking in the evening and they went the whole night and they didn't notice that it had become morning. And that's, yeah, sure. Maybe it's, you know, just romanticism, but I think, no, it's not romanticism. We also go through that when we do activities we enjoy, like people who go fishing or artists who start, um, you know, painting a beautiful landscape, they will literally lose sensation of chronos. And it's that loss of sensation of chronos that is the entrance into eternity. And I think you hit the nail on the head because what a lot of people define eternity as is just infinite time. It's the time that we experience now, but it, it just doesn't have a cap on it. And so we just keep on going on and on and on and on forever. But it's like you said, it's, it's presence because what is the future? It's time that I do not have yet access to. And the, what's the past? It's time that... I also have no longer access to. I once had access to, but I do not have access to anymore. Whereas in the liturgy, what do we say? In the liturgy of St. Gregory, we say, oh, you the being who exists at all times, or oh, you who exists at all times, according to the English translation. So for Christ and for God, for the Trinity, it's still, you know, the year 1948. That's not in the past. And it's the year, whatever, 2050 if we live that long, if the world exists a lot long, who, you know, whatever. But the idea is that there is nothing that's no longer present for God and something that is not yet present for God because he is unlimited. And so his experience of time, it's not that he's shut out of time, right? Time rather is referring to the fact that we are constantly limited by these two um, ecstasies of past and future. You know, the present represents this border between the past and the future, the, the border, the tiny, tiny, tiny infinitesimal border where I exist now, but I no longer exist in the past, I no longer exist in the future. So it's in this infinitesimal point where I have a small taste of what God experiences in eternity, if I can even use it that way. We can never enter into God's experience in his essence and understand what his experience is. But we can at least by negation know that he has no experience of limitation the past and the future are still present, right? By the meaning of that word, present to him. And so the experience of eternity is the experience of the present, is the present. And the more I get hold away into fascination, into fantasies of future or anxieties of the past, right? The more I'm 
trapped in those modes of thinking, the more the present is robbed of me and the more that I'm trapped in time and no longer am I in uh, Kairos, but I'm in Kronos. Or perhaps not even in Kronos because what I'm living in now doesn't even exist anymore, right? It's, it's a fantasy. But the more I am located in the present, the more I have access to a more holistic view of time and the more I, as I taste God's eternity and, and enter and, into that experience. And, and right? it's so love, yeah. the fishing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the presence that I, I, I you know, hinted out, but I didn't use the word for because presence and presence, you know, when we get, when we enter into presence, it's relation, relationship. You know, it's the relationship between the husband and the wife. It's the relationship between the artist and the landscape. It's that relationality that is a reflection of God himself, because God is three in one. The three exist in relationship from eternity. It's right. It's, it's love oriented. It's love. It's love. It's, it's the manifestation of the love of God. And again, the being of God is love by nature. You know, uh, right. God is love. And when we allow that relationship, that reciprocal relationship, because like some people think, oh, well, nature, you know, it's, it's, it's one way. It's us appreciating it, and it doesn't answer back. Oh, no, it's a dialogue. We're negotiating with it. We're, it's almost like nature speaks silently and the artist speaks back when they draw or, or you know, paint the painting because not everyone can paint. It's, it requires being in the presence of attentiveness um, and work. It's not just, you know, someone touches their finger on a piece of canvas and boom, there it is. That's magic. But what right. the artist, the word, yeah. The word that the apostles used, or the fathers at least borrowing from the apostles is nepsis, nipsis. Uh, nipsis is from uh, Peter's first epistle where it says, be sober and vigilant is nipsate. So this idea of, you know, watchfulness that Christ keeps, you know, harping away at in the Gospels. And this idea of uh, being sober and vigilant is that it's not only, not only are you looking to the future as if coming in the present, but it causes you to be present because you're always attentive. You've given your attention to the present always and keep your eyes open, so to speak, to the, to the uh, task at hand, to the person you're speaking, to the conversation you're having, to the lecture you're attending to the task you're performing. But here again, in a qualitative sense, what is the value to the person who I'm offering this to? And that's why when we say that the present is where your presence is confined to, it's a self-giving. It's a moment of self-sacrifice, both to God and to neighbor. And I think that is the, the, the summit of, of what you've been saying with Kairos and Kronos is that if you want Kronos to become Kairos, you want it to be transfigured in the light of eternity and God's eternity, then it has to be seasoned with the light of love and it has attention. to be attention. Let us attend, proschomen. Yes. It's, let us attend. That's what it means. It means let us have attention, not stand there and, you know, be respectful. It's not like I attended the liturgy. Well, no, that's not what it means. Attended the liturgy. It's, oh, okay, so you were participating fully? No, no, I attended it. No, attending here means to participate fully. Just like, right. you know, when you're attending to your neighbor, you're listening to them, you're conversing back. You're not just sitting there and nodding your head. At that point, nobody's going to be talking to you for much longer. <laughs> but um, otherwise, there wouldn't be a deacon response, right? If it was just about 
being present there, where they're already present there, right? Or like physically being there, they're already there. Yeah, it clearly means something more, like you're saying. And it's these things that slip our attention during the liturgy. When it says, look toward the east, we're already looking toward the east. It's not talking to people who have become inattentive. It's talking about the spiritual east, the focus, what we should be orienting our minds and hearts around. When it says, let us attend, it doesn't mean come to church. It's not like people were standing outside the church building at the beginning of the, the, the church. There was no church building. <laughs> they used to pray at houses, and those houses were securely shut, even to the point that the pagans had no idea what was going on in these liturgies um, right. for hundreds of years, you know, at least the first couple of hundred years. Um, pagans were mystified because that's literally how serious the early Christians took their attention to the liturgy. Um, it was not, you know, today you go to churches, you find people standing outside the doors um, or in the parking lots or in front of the gate. Um, but that's, you know, unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But back again, those moments of eternity manifest themselves in Kronos. So the Kairos manifests in Kronos. And we talked about those patterns. They show us these rhythms of the universe, the rhythms of life. And when they're interrupted, I think that's what leads to such poor quality of life and spiritual life. You know, a kid, like go back to the analogy of the kid. Um, um, you know, you're going to get a 99% or higher on this test. And actually, one time I was at my church and I mentioned that in, in a meeting where I was uh, delivering um, like a lesson to, to the adults who serve. And I mentioned, you know, you don't need a, you, you know, if a kid gets 90 in middle school, it's equal to a hundred percent in term for all intents and purposes. And you should have seen the reaction on those adults faces. <laughs> they were not pleased. I was saying that then later I go out, there's this mom in the parking lot. She's absolutely shredding her kid in front of another parent for getting a 94%. I thought it was a joke because they didn't know the culture and he did get a 94%. She was shredding him over it. Where's the other 6%? And it's that type of kid who's going to lose presence. Mm. Their whole attention will be given to the test result. Then later, the test results in college. Then later, the result at work even when they're sitting at home, assuming they have a family, everything becomes pushed off into the future. Who cares about the past? So like some people live in the past and they're bitter, they're angry, they're paralyzed. They have a victim complex. And those no, who are living in the future, those who are anxious all the time, worrisome, aren't unable to get ease and relax and, and, and be in the present, like you said. Yeah. yeah. And then and then people say, okay, so we should live in the present. Well, no. <laughs> There's also a problem with the present. When the present is just taken as, you know, my relaxation time, I gotta recharge. Um, you know, I gotta enjoy the moment, then we lose perspective. Mm -hmm. So one is bitterness, one is anxiety, and one is loss of perspective. But there's um, a present experience, like you're saying, that gathers yeah. in its embrace the past and the future in a way that makes both present. Because you're not just working for you know, the moment in a kind of hedonistic way, but rather you're watchful and sober, but working for a future that is already present and for a past, which, you know, is, to use the Greek word, 
anamnesis is, is memory that's being used for the present. And so you gather both the past and future in the embrace of the present. And you're not just confined to the narrow moment of the present, like the chronological infinitesimal moment, but rather you are rising up to this chirotic experience of time, if I can use that word, the kairos, where you're, you are qualitatively relating yourself to both the past and present, uh, past and future, and to other people. And I just want to add a small quote by Kierkegaard here that I really like. There's a quote by Kierkegaard here that I really liked. Sorry if the, the sound wasn't as clear. Um, what he says is, so he disagrees with Heidegger. Heidegger had an um, argument with um, this, the Department of Theology, which he said that you guys can never have a proper understanding of time because it's always foreclosed by eternity. You know, Heidegger was big on this idea of endingness of time. And there's some merit to that, right? Time is endingness and fleetingness. But he said, you can never understand time properly as a theological department because you're always foreclosing that experience with your understanding of eternity. What Kierkegaard, on the other hand, says, and he completely disagrees with this, he says, the present is a species of the eternity. He says this, he says, our conception of eternity is indispensable to our experience of time. He says, the moment is not properly an atom of time. And here means the moment as in the present. The moment is not properly an atom of time, but an atom of eternity. It is the first reflection of eternity in time. It's first attempt, as it were, at stopping time. And that's why when you're fishing and you're out with your friends and you completely forget yourself and you forget every sense of time, but it's also because you're completely present in that moment. And so that's the, the present stopping time, as it were. It's that taste of eternity. Yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's something that if we're ever to have a robust spiritual life, we have to understand and live in accordance with. You know, when we consider spirituality as nothing more than, you know, doing my part to God and he will reward me with heaven at the end. He lost all of life. He lost what he created you to enjoy, what he created you for. You know, I, I can't remember where I'm, I'm getting this from, but human beings were created to magnify and to praise and to exalt God. That doesn't just mean go to church and sing hymns. It means to create them inside of you as well. You know, when you look at the creation account, which is interesting because Kronos and Kairos um, cross there. And I think that's what causes a lot of people to misinterpret Genesis 1. <laughs> but when he creates the world, humans are created last. Now, I, I I'm not going to get into the very rich interpretations. There are so many layers there. But one of them, at the very least, and actually, maybe I should direct my listeners because I don't want them leaving with a simplistic. Um, if you go to my episode called What is the Liturgy? I explain one interpretation for Genesis 1. It's not an exclusive interpretation. It was definitely one that was understood by early Christians about what Genesis chapter 1 is saying. Um, and it, it, it's phrased in terms of a liturgy. Um, but part of that, humans are placed at the end after God creates everything. And he sees that it's very good. And that word in Greek for good doesn't mean good as in... Um, you know, it's morally good, although there might be that um, interpretation. It, it's good in the terms that it's beautiful. Kalon in Greek. You know, moral goodness is agathos in Greek. 
You know, when you say this is a good man, you say this is agathos. Mm. But when you say kalon, this is good as in beautiful, good in quality. This is a pattern. And again, that goes back to Kairos because Kairos is the realm of time that deals with patterns and fulfillment and goals. So here is, huh? And meaning. Yeah, a meaning. So when humans are placed at the end of all this, created in the image of God, they're supposed to bring forth that praise by recognition, by response, not just by chanting things that we've been told all the time. You know, there's this idea in, in, in among the, the spirituality of the early church, I think especially in the, the Desert Fathers, that when you come to pray the Psalms and the prayers, you have to make them your own. It means and you... I to mention, says, when you stand in prayer, um, man has now the ability to transform time into eternity. And I think that's, I mean, that go place everything that you're saying right there. Oh, yes. And, and that's, that's exactly what I'm, I'm getting to. You know, when we pray a Psalm like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows the creation of his hands. Day to day utters speech and night to night reveals knowledge. If you're just chanting that and you've never experienced the glory of the world and you've never had that feeling bubble up inside of you of awe and wonder, you've never looked at the night sky to know what it means. Oh, night to night utters speech. Because how much poetry has been created over the centuries relating to the stars? And it's still being created and will continue to be till the stars go out. That is the praise of God. And people don't get it. You know, you go to church, you taught a really good kid to pray. Oh, he's a really good boy. And he doesn't know anything he's praying. That is the Benelazi. Yeah. He memorized our father. Our father, yeah. Yeah, but, but they have to make it their own in the sense that they don't agree with it. They have experienced that themselves, and now they're singing along with the psalmist. So they're not, you know, borrowing it. They're not copying it. They're not repeating it. They're not getting brownie points for it because there are no brownie points. The reward is in the experience and the singing along out of recognition. So that is a recognition of chaos. You know, when we look at all these, you know, um, um, uh, the Psalm, oh, um, oh Lord, our oh Lord, how wondrous is, <laughs> what is, complete it for oh Lord, me. Lord, oh Lord, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. How wonderful Amen. is your name in all the earth. From the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Um, then he goes into the animal. This is the psalmist recognizing the wonders and the glory of God and praising him because of what has happened inside of him. It's God has revealed himself through his work. And when the psalmist has recognized the work of God, that naturally and authentically leads to praise. That's chaos, and that's what it does for us. But when everything just becomes about the next moment or study and whatnot, we lose that. We lose the pattern of life that God has created us to live in, to grow in, to enjoy. We lose the sensation of nature as the work of God, as the creation. You know, we use the word nature. You know, it should be creation because it evokes other things. 
you know, of course, you know, I like being out in nature. Yes, I get a positive, you know, association with that word, but creation um, just goes a little bit further. Um, it's mm -hmm. intention and purpose and beauty. And, and what you were saying about like man being at the, you know, the very last creation, because a lot of the cosmic, cosmic, whatever, cosmic, cosmological cosmic. myths, yeah. the cosmogonical myths of however you pronounce that word, of other, you know, religions at the time, the gods will end up creating the very last thing as a sum of the work. But in the Hebrew story of creation, you know, man is the sum of his work and he's the one as that consummation who's supposed to bring all these things together in himself, in his own transfiguration of Kronos into Kairos, in his own qualitative relational experience with the rest of creation, by seeing the beauty of God in all these things and taking the time to properly relate to them rather than quantitatively pump out as much, you know, work or productivity or profit or whatever, as you said before, but rather to um, glorify God through creation and through his work in creation as a steward and as the summit and crown of his work. And, and, that and, yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, the first thing that God has Adam do is to name the animals. Mm. And, you know, for, for a language arts teacher myself, I love etymology. <laughs> when, whenever you look up what a word means, like the name of an animal, it's purely metaphorical or metonymic. You know, um, if you look at a word like, um, trying to think in English, what's a common word, common animal word, but, you know, you look at like a word like, you know what, let me look something up. <laughs> um, well, that reminds me of something, because if, if you're, I mean, referring to the idea of naming as creation, um, somebody, I think it was a biblical scholar named John Walton, he writes, the name of a living being or an object was the very essence of what was defined. And he's here, he's talking about how the ancient thinking goes, right? As far as the ancient thinking goes, something is in capture. The essence of something is, is, is um, encapsul encapsulated in its very name when it's defined. And the pronouncing of a name, he continues, was to create what was spoken. So in the first place, you have God speaking everything into existence. You know? Let there be light. Now he's defined something. It comes out of this kind of unintelligible chaos and forms into this orderly thing called light. Let there be earth, let there be, um, you know, living creatures, let there be so on and so forth. And then when Adam is now given the task to name the animals, he is, in the words of um, J.R.R. Tolkien, sub-creating. He's sub-creating, you know, under, obviously underneath God's own creation. And by pronouncing these names, He's properly orienting creation in himself as this culmination, as the summit of God's own creation um, and properly relating to it. Yeah. And, and like you actually phrased my thought, <laughs> you completed my thought way, but I just got frozen there, but you did. It's a form of sub-creation. They're participating in what God has created, but it also comes due to attentiveness. You know, they didn't look at some animals and say, you're going to be called, ooh, Another name is going to be called, ah, no, there is something recognized, you know, even in a very basic, you know, like octopus, eight footed, you know, they noticed, they attended to something about it. I don't know how many people would right away, unless they've studied it, know an octopus has eight feet. They just know right. it's this big, scary monster with tentacles. But right. I noticed, you know, when, when God created Eve for him, he actually gives a praise. And a poem. It's a poem. Most people don't know that. 
because Hebrew poetry is written in couplets, couplets mm. where when one idea is expressed in one sentence, the other the um, the idea is repeated in different words or expanded upon in the next one. So he right. says, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh." There's the parallelism. She right. shall be called woman, and in uh, right. Hebrew it's Isha, because she was taken out of man. Ish. And I, if I'm That's not wrong, poetry. It's Adam who names her, right? Adam is the one yeah. who names her. And he so names her. Yeah. He's involved even, so to speak, with this. Um, I mean, God isn't the one who, who creates. I mean, he creates her, but he even even Adam is involved here in subcreating his wife. I mean, he's bringing her out of this unintelligibility and noticing her as something that's special. But he obviously... But, by, but by that noticing, he's recognizing what God has done. It's mm -hmm. a recognition of his work. Um, right. It's, yeah, and it's, it's people don't see that. Oh, it's okay. He's, you know, stating facts. No, it's not facts. It's, it's a praise. Um, and even when he names her again, um, you know, there, um, he didn't name her. Later, he calls her Eve. And that is living life because she's going to bear the living. And it's, it's, and, and, you know, for people who named the name Zoe in, uh, in, in the West and in, in the Septuagint, when they translated it, it said he called her Zoe, a translation of Eve in, in Hebrew. But um, I mean, this echoes also, if I can just add the point quickly, yeah. in Revelation uh, chapter two, verse 17, God himself gives us a new name. He says, I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written. So it's a new identity. It's a new creation that we become. And so when we become deadened by sin, when we become deadened by this tedious rhythm, this tedious repetition and boredom and meaninglessness, vapid meaninglessness of, of Kronos, God comes and calls us anew again and recreates us, so to speak, as a new creation with new names, new identity in Christ, um, having become embodied as Christ's living members, as we said before, when the time is fulfilled when Kronos is fulfilled and transfigured. And now we can go on to dwell, live, and tend the paradise which we are first brought into. Yeah, and that's very well worded. And to continue with that, it's it's you know, we've talked about Kronos as you know, the ticking of the clock, and that would refer to like chronological order, first, last. But then we talked about Kairos and these patterns manifesting themselves in creation and the patterns, you know, the archetypes in Greek, the word archi means um, origin as in pattern. This is the, the framework. And then telos would be, it's, you know, the equivalent, the analog to end. And it is translated end in English, but end as in the goal, the fulfillment. It has finally achieved, like the pattern has finally become real. It has manifested itself in, in, you know, matter. And it's interesting because there's that verse in Revelation, Revelation, I think 22, 13, where it says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You think, oh, it's talking about just time. But actually one part is talking about Kronos and the other part, Kairos. Because in the Greek, it reads, Egoto alpha, keto omega. O protos ke o eschatos, iarchi keto telos. So the first part is Kronos. He's the one who started it all, and he's the one who will bring it to an end. Then the second part, 
Telos. He is the pattern and he is the goal of the whole thing. And that's that's the end of days as it was achieved on the cross. When he right before he dies on the cross, he says, Teteleste, it mm-hmm. has been accomplished. The goal has been fulfilled. That's the verb form of telos. And that becomes the goal of all of history. The end of time is not the goal of history. It's the ticking. It's the ending of the ticking of the clock. The goal is that he has come. He has given us the pattern by which to live. He has healed us of sin, and he has made that available to all of us. So now life becomes a reflection. It's almost, um, it's an interpretation. So everything up until that time was a struggle to define what it means mm-hmm. to be human. And like okay. I said, I think, you know, with, with the advancements in philosophy and its perception about understanding how to define reality, and in addition to the revelation of the, the um, you know, the Judaism, when those came together, I believe at the earliest possible point, he was incarnate. Because mm-hmm. everything after that time has become a way to interpret, not to define, but to interpret why these things were so. And we can see the patterns. We can see, you know, the pattern of sin and the pattern of salvation. We can see how the pattern of sin was wreaking havoc on the world. And again, sin, uh, you know, for those listening in the Orthodox tradition, it is like a disease. It's not just, you know, offense, it's a disease and it's spreading and it takes control over the person, just like a disease debilitates people. And it becomes to the point where we hopelessly need the cure. And he has come and provided that cure. That is salvation. So it's brought together. It's, you know, we have to live in that life of response, that life of attention. And not just when we go to church, but everything around us, because there's the sacramental liturgy. And that is, you know, the foundation and the the height of the spiritual life. But there's also a larger liturgy outside of the doors where it's God's creation. And the liturgy inside the church is to cause us to go out and appreciate the liturgy that is outside the church, that is the creation of the universe, then to go back and praise God in the sacramental liturgy and let that be a cycle of life. Right. And they're not separate. They're the, they're the same. It's it's one big cosmic liturgy, but it's in the liturgy at the altar as the summit of all of that, where we gather together both as a body, as an ecclesial unit, right, as a church, and both individually, we gather ourselves in our hearts and our minds on the Eucharistic offering. And as the body of Christ and his blood are offered on the altar, and now we can see God locally present. We can begin to become his body so that every place becomes a manifestation of his presence. And so we can look at the entire cosmos from beginning to end as a place, as a sanctuary, as the altar, as the temple of his presence. As the early fathers would often tell you, you know, origin, read origin, read Clement of Alexandria. Read these early church fathers and how they spoke about the liturgy of space and time as encompassing the entirety of creation. And it's yeah, in this vision. Yeah. In the chalice, the chalice is that transformation, is the beginning 
and the pivot of the transformation of our entire outlook see all of that yeah and it's you know the liturgy of saint gregory it's you know that one really brings it together and, mm-hmm. and you know it's lamentable I, I know it's a very long liturgy but when you really hear the prayers this is what a wonderful way to praise to praise god for everything he has done you know there's that part about you know you have given me the gift of speech and you know he he develops this theology of language in there and but he does that for the creation as well and i think you know depending on the era that the church has lived some liturgies have become dominant and some have fallen out of use you know it's like you know a lot of coptic listeners may not realize that we've had at least 13 liturgies at least you know that's that's from my very basic knowledge you know you can speak more to that because you're the liturgical master here but we have three now and again they became dominant um you know because of the era i think those liturgies like the liturgy of saint gregory with its power to reshape our vision about existence and living in the world they should become dominant in this era because we are hungry this generation is hungry for meaning like you see it everywhere you know the depression the anxiety the suicidality these mm. things now I'm, I'm of course you know i'm not giving psychiatric advice here but these things are definitely alleviated by meaningfulness you know i doubt anybody with anxiety they're just going to give them medication without you know causing that training them to think about the present for example and you know giving due measure to the present you know people who have anxiety tend to over obsess about the future and again part of that is the thinking now of course there's probably some chemical issue there that requires medication but it shouldn't be one or the other it should be there should be that vision i mean it's sin is disease right it's not the, the goal isn't to simply blame someone for yeah. something because even Christ himself says, you know, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave has already sold off part of their freedom, you know? So it's not a matter of just saying you're fully responsible for this error. And no, but it's a, it's a sin in the sense of a disease and you can't separate the physical and the spiritual and the mental aspect from it. They're all interrelated. And You've got to heal from this end. You've got to heal from that end. And um, so a, a medication with some proper reorientation of your thinking are both needed together without separating one from the other. And if I may close off with the spiritual medicine, you know, when we go to the Eucharist, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And you brought up this word earlier, anamnesis. Anamnesis, that is the verb for remembrance, to do this in remembrance, or sorry, the, the noun for do this in remembrance of me. But anamnesis is not simple memory. It's not remember me. It's you're going to stop and review, because that's what anamnesis means. You review what has happened. It's almost like I would translate it as reflection, but it's even deeper than reflection because it has an effect on the present and the future. When we do that, and when we practice that, for lack of a better word, reflectiveness, this is what Christ has done. This is what his life was. What's that mean for me? And again, 
that even probably is a weak question because it's not what does that mean for me and what should I do? But it's out of love, you start becoming like him. Because when one loves, they become like what they love. It's really cool because there's a, there's a quote by, there's a story of Plato's, Plato and Socrates when they're with a slave boy. And when, when Plato talks about anamnesis, he says, you know, Socrates. Re recollection, recollection. Recollection, right? Yeah. And he, and he sits and he asks him a, a uh, arithmetic question or a question about geometry. And he asks the boy how many sides the triangle uh, the sides of a triangle add up or the angle uh, the, the the corners of a triangle what what do the angle add up to and the boy struggles at first and then without giving him the answer he guides into the answer and then socrates says see this is because of reincarnation he remembers something from a past lifetime now obviously as christians we don't believe in reincarnation however the idea here can be understood in the sense that every time we gather in the liturgy when we engage in anamnesis or recollection, we are embodying, becoming the body of Christ from the past. The body that suffered, died, and rose 2,000 years ago becomes present now in the present for us. Yeah. And it's, and, not, yeah. Just, it's not just a matter of you know, looking back at the past. Like we said, there is no past anymore. There's only a present of past things. Rather... What's happening is right now, Christ becomes embodied in the world so that really and truly we become his body in, in the 21st century. And, and that, so, and that think, anamnesis, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, and I think that, that's what connects this Socrates' understanding. Obviously, we don't believe in reincarnation. I want to emphasize that. But, but, but I do think that there's some continuation, yeah. But yeah, that recollection, and in this case, because Christ is a person and we love that person and we start becoming you know, the image of him is uh, um, formed in us. You know, I point out like anamnesis ends in is in Greek. That ending in Greek refers to continuation, continuous, something that's continuous. It's not mm -hmm. static. Um, like maybe even, you know, translate is as ing. So remembering, do this in remembering, remembering as in continuous me. That will then lead to two other words that also end in is, pestis and elpis. Pestis is hope, elpis, sorry, pestis is faith, elpis is hope. And faith is not, you know, self-deception. It's not a mental state. It's I am going to shape my life on his. That's what faith is. It's trust, trusting, continuation, and hope. That is the attitude toward the future. It's not anxiety, but we know that the expectation, which is a way that that word is translated, that hope of glory, that hope of being with Christ and us being together in him, that is the ultimate goal of the eschaton, the future, the end, the last. We can say that anamnesis or memory in this Christian sense heals remorse because we can look at the past as forgiven in Christ on the cross. And at the same time, um, nepsis, like we said before, nepsis being watchfulness of the future coming into the present, heals anxiety. Because no longer is the future looked at this uncertain thing that's coming at us, but it's a sort of coming of Christ that's fully embraced in the present, which is what leads Paul to say, modern atom, 
you know, come Lord. So I think that is a key, another key to understanding time in, in this positive sense of, um, you know, it's a, the Kairos heals, heals the fragmentation of Kronos. It heals the, the anxieties of the future and the remorse of the past. And I will say that's, um, I'll bridge into the end now. It's, and, and you, know, you know, the end of this uh, podcast, but also the end of the world and, and the spiritual life and all of it. Um, when we practice reflection too upon our own lives and frame it in the life of Christ, and assuming we have a very um, robust understanding of the suffering that he went through. And for that, I would recommend a book by Shusako Endo, A Life of Jesus, but with three grains of salt. But in general, if you want to know how Christ was the man of sorrows, I think that book very well puts it across. But when you frame it that way, and you reflect on your own life, you'll also be able to preserve those moments of meaning that you would have maybe forgotten in the ticking of time. You know, when I journal, and I started this probably my uh, third year, probably at the end, no, fourth year of work, because there were just so many things going on and I felt if I didn't write them down, I was losing part of my own life in the ticking of the clock. There are some things when I go back, I would not have remembered apart from it, and it comes rushing back to me. But then that also allows us to frame our lives and think about it and to slow down, in a sense, the ticking of the clock. But when we frame it in the life of Christ and we grow like him and the others around us grow like him, then when we come to the end, we'll have also come to the goal. When we have come to the eschaton, we will also have met it with the telos. And at that point, time and eternity. Kronos and Kairos will literally meet. Thank you so much for being with me today, Peter. I really My enjoyed. Pleasure. I've enjoyed Thank this you, discussion. Um, and uh, I'm sure you'll be coming back soon <laughs> from time to time. God willing. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.